It's the 23rd of December, 2014, and this is episode 172. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hey everybody, Adam B. Levine here with our second Christmas episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, we listen to parts three and four of the Radio Dream Story, a selected reading from the book The Master Switch by Tim Wu about the history of technology and communication, from which I think some lessons emerge for the world of cryptocurrency. Part three deals with the origins of British broadcasting as a high-minded state-sanctioned monopoly, and part four explores the early commercialization and centralization of AM radio in the United States. But first, Martin Hursk brings us his fabulous reading of his original story entitled The Bitcoin Miracle. Let's join him now. The Bitcoin Miracle by Martin Hursk. Email martinhursk at gmail.com. M-A-R-T-I-N-H-U-R-S-K at gmail.com. Hey, Sue! Did you see a little piece of paper in the study? It was on my shelf, asked Andy with an apparent air of nonchalance on a late morning in December 2013. Sue scanned his expression quizzically and replied, Um, sorry, I haven't, dear. Andy stared at her, conscious of a hollow, sinking feeling developing in his gut. If she didn't know, where could the little piece of paper be? (sighs) Sue, it's just that that paper had the private key to over a million dollars in Bitcoin. The words were straining to come out of his lips. Sue didn't have an audible response. Her heart was sinking too, not just at the money lost, but also because she could sense their relationship crumbling. In the early days, it was exhilarating. Sue was taken in by Andy's intensely analytic brain, combined with his endearing idealism and pie-in-the-sky dream of a world free of poverty and strife. He, in turn, fell for the charming schoolteacher grounded in real-life practicalities. Though they had opposite personalities, their mutual attraction seemed to make the marriage work. And when Patrick came along in 2005, followed by cute Pete three years later, their world seemed complete. Sue quit her job, plunging into household chores, mothering kids, and giving all the tender touches that make a house a home. When Andy first heard about Bitcoin from a friend... In early 2010, it was like he was watching science fiction become science. Within a week, it was all he could think of. Libertarians and millennial techies were going crazy about Bitcoin, and even though he himself had never felt like a part of any movement, his dormant idealism fired up. Here was an open, decentralized technology, a payment network for sending money anywhere in the world practically free, A global currency not backed by any central bank. It was a total game changer. There were exciting applications he could not even pretend to imagine. It was like the heady days of the internet when the World Wide Web had just been invented. Who knew then, watching the hours it took to download a single web page, that the first browser would be the forerunner of electronic commerce, social networks, political revolutions, internet telephony, online learning, and all the other exciting things that we take for granted today. In a month's time, he had read everything he could on the subject. 
Not long after, he had quit his day job as a computer analyst and had turned into an avid participant on the Bitcoin subreddits and other such forums on the internet. And then he started mining Bitcoin for a living. With a simple computer, which was progressively replaced by more specialized equipment, Andy was generating the magical sequences of ones and zeros on a daily basis, satisfying the increasingly difficult equations demanded by the Bitcoin protocol. And the price of the Bitcoin, despite some dramatic crashes on its journey upward, had reached dizzying heights, rising from a few cents in 2010 to over $1,200 for a single Bitcoin in November 2013. There were many nights that Andy laid awake in bed, dreaming about the exciting things they could do with the newfound money. But Andy had sold not even one Bitcoin, and when Sue goaded him to sell a few, he said with a grin, <laughs> Sue, just wait and see. One Bitcoin is going to be worth a million dollars someday, I'm telling you. Ignoring Sue's groan and rolling of the eyes, he rambled on. We're going to be able to do things on a global scale, like charities, development projects in Africa, and all that good stuff. And hey, maybe we'll be able to send Patrick and Pete to the college of their dreams. Now wouldn't that be something? In his mind, it was not just about the money. Andy spoke of his vision of a world free of corruption with a borderless humanistic currency that could not be manipulated by governments. Some of his passion rubbed onto Sue and the children. When Patrick created a YouTube video of little Pete playing with their dog, Sue suggested that he add a Bitcoin donation QR code at the end. She could vividly recall how excited the kids were seeing on the blockchain the first donations from all over the world trickling into their address in almost real time. It was an aha moment for Sue, a realization of a world where imaginative people could create videos and write stories on the internet and receive payments or donations instantly and directly. No middlemen needed. Andy told Patrick and Pete captivating stories of the world's most expensive pizza ordered by a miner with 10,000 bitcoins in 2010, which of course in 2013 would be worth $6 million. He told them about the government crackdown on people acquiring drugs on Silk Road using bitcoin, the creation of other new coins such as Litecoin and Doggycoin. Pete thought that sounded really funny. And of course, the story of the tech geek in England who lost over $9 million worth of Bitcoin forever when he accidentally tossed out his old computer's hard drive. Most of all, Patrick was intrigued by the mystery of Satoshi Nakamoto, said to be the anonymous founder of Bitcoin. Was Satoshi a person? A group? An agency? Or an organization? Was he even real? No one knew. Even little Pete would shrug with amazement upon hearing these tales of mystique, mischief, and allure narrated in Andy's own inimitable style. It was late in 2012 when Sue felt that Andy's obsession with Bitcoin was getting out of hand, bordering on the manic, and that he was losing touch with the real world. The signs were unmistakable. He would spend all his time in the Bitcoin universe. He had little time for Sue or the children. He canceled the monthly family nature outings and he forgot their wedding anniversary date. He had lost a lot of weight and had acquired a lean and haggard persona with an absent-minded look on his face. 
He was always to be seen reading or watching Bitcoin news on the internet and even checking Bitcoin prices on numerous exchanges for no reason at all. He had no intent to sell. And there was also the insecurity. In the backdrop of WikiLeaks and NSA spying, stories of rampant hacking and online theft of Bitcoin had become common. It was like the Wild West, but instead of guns, robbers were armed with password-cracking programs and cryptographic techniques. Andy's obsession with securing his stash of bitcoins had started to grow to paranoia. He had struggled for weeks with ideas on complicated technological methods to protect his 1,816 bitcoins. But when his pal, a security expert, got locked out from a huge chunk of Bitcoin and snared by his own cryptological safeguards, the irony of his plight took hold in Andy's mind, and he thought, Hmm, why don't I just do the simplest thing possible and use one of the oldest technologies in the world? Yes, it was time for the good old paper wallet. After all, Andy's guiding principle was, When decision-making is too complex, look for the simple answer. And when it looks too simple, add nuance and complexity. He would transfer his Bitcoin stash from the 20 or 22 multiple encrypted locations on the internet to a single address created by him disconnected from the internet in what is called a cold paper wallet. He would print the private access key on paper and place the paper in a safe deposit vault. And he would not look at it for the next five years or when each Bitcoin touched a million dollars. Whichever came first. What could go wrong? On the 12th of December, on a snowy night, Andy worked late until the wee hours of the morning. He was in his study putting his plan to action. It didn't take long to transfer the money. Two mouse clicks for every transaction. He printed the destination address and the encrypted private key on a sheet of paper. He deftly cut out the secret key with surgical snips of the scissor. What now? Should he laminate the chit? Or glue it to some metal? Decisions. He was getting tired of having to make decisions was already pretty late. He decided to take this question up first thing the next morning. In the meantime, he placed the little paper chit where only he could conveniently find it. The left side of the top leftmost drawer of his desk, as he was left-handed. He'd leave it just by the scissors, glue stick, scotch tape, and associated paraphernalia. And off he went into a much-deserved heavenly sleep. The next two days were hell. The scrap of paper was nowhere to be found. Sue had been in the room that morning when Andy was still asleep and had even used the scissors and other equipment to wrap presents, but she hadn't noticed the chit. Sue and Andy looked everywhere in the desk, on the carpet, by the windowsill, even in the trash can. Ten times. Twenty times. Patrick and Pete were rigorously quizzed and fully recruited for the search task, but all to no avail. The money was gone. When it was clear that the slip of paper was not to be found, and there was nothing they could do, Andy finally cracked. 
It was as if the rug had been pulled from under his feet and he had nowhere to go. No matter how hard Sue tried to console Andy, Hey, we're lucky we're alive and together this Christmas. And that was just money. For Andy, life was over. The regret of forgetfulness, the anger at his stupidity, the utter despair of existence hit him hard, like a sledgehammer. His world had come crashing down, and so, on a bitterly cold and gloomy night in the third week of December, Andy decided it was time to end his life. But years of analytic training had sharpened his logical skills to the point that even as he was planning his own death, he could ask some rational questions. What was it that was bothering him so much? Was it just the loss of the Bitcoin? Or was it the loss of a dream? The dream of how he would change the world? Or was it disgust at himself for being so disappointed at losing a little wealth? But he wondered, what was the big deal? After all, he still had his family, his occupation, his health, and the rest of his life before him. But another part of him said, Oh, don't console yourself, Andy. Self-consolation is not truth. This line of inquiry led him to consider a strange question. Who is the I that was trying to console himself? This started a chain of new questions. Why was there a need for consolation in the first place? Was there a part of him identified with his bitcoins, his ideology, and his dreams? that had just crashed? Was there a self that wanted consolation from another self that would presumably provide the consolation? Perhaps there were multiple selves, each wanting opposing things, and it was this conflict that was killing him. In that case, which was the real self? Is there a real true self? If there is a real self then the other selves must be illusory. And this led him to the question, what is the self? This existential mystery haunted him and pounded him for two days and two nights. He would not eat, sleep, or talk to anyone. The who am I mystery was much harder than the cryptographic challenge of mining the next Bitcoin where at least he could rely on cutting-edge technology. But in facing this existential Cohen directly, without trying to console or comfort his wounded sense of self, the best he had, his sharp, rational mind, was failing him. Badly. The questions kept churning rapidly in his brain, weary from his own knowledge, unable to get real answers, and drained of all energy... Andy finally surrendered to the blissful oblivion of sleep. The next morning, Andy felt decidedly different. Gone was the tiredness of the previous two nights, and gone was the angst of decades of existence. And wonder of wonders, it came as a revelation to him that the identity question the most difficult and important existential question that he had ever faced had just vanished. When he peered into his mind, 
he realized that it was not that he had found a satisfactory answer. He had not. It was just that the question had exploded, disappeared, and dissolved. And with the ending of the question, in one fell swoop, the need for finding answers was gone. He had seen through the nature of illusion. He knew from the gut that he was not his ego, and hence he could watch the machinations of all egos, including his own, from an objective space. Perhaps the dissolution of the question was an answer of sorts, but one consequence of his breakthrough was that concepts and explanations didn't matter anymore. He just knew that he did not know and did not need to know. For no reason whatsoever, he felt happy. As he looked outside at the barren trees in the backyard, he exclaimed with joy to an astonished Sue, Ah, beautiful, aren't they? Satoshi had turned to Satori. It was a discovery of true freedom. The big aha moment. In a flash, he saw why his attachment to Bitcoin, his future dreams, his idealism, and his sense of self had been the cause of his suffering. Would he find the lost Bitcoins? He didn't care. He was secure in his understanding of change, the transitory nature of all life. It was an amazing week. Andy felt the first stirrings of selfless love for Sue, Patrick, and Pete, who had all endured his peculiar views and tantrums for so many years. It came naturally to him to forgive all those who had wronged him, including the past Andy. His relationship with Sue changed, and she could feel it. For the first time in years, she felt he understood her, appreciated her, and unconditionally accepted her for what she was. He would still mine bitcoins for a living, but there was no obsession remaining in him. Gone were his regrets. Was this a miracle of God, or a simple return to a natural state of humanity? Had he really found the secret key to happiness? And was it possible to share it with the world? In his mind, what had seemed to be a private key was actually a public key, available to all those who had eyes to see and ears to listen. With newfound clarity, Andy laughed and cried at the simplicity of it all. Christmas Eve is planned to be quiet, reflective, and subdued. However, the children can hardly contain their enthusiasm for their new dad as they gather around the fireplace. Gifts are unimportant, though they're open with excitement. Sue has a simple smile for Andy that says, I don't need anything anymore. Patrick tears open the envelope that Sue had so diligently prepared for him. It's a Bitcoin gift. A Bitcoin paper wallet with 50 preloaded millibitcoins. As he reaches into the envelope to grab the paper wallet out, a crumpled piece of paper falls out. It's a small slip of paper with a QR code and a bunch of printed letters and numbers. Andy's private key. 
It must have attached itself to the glue that was used to close the gift. In the hushed silence that follows, the only sound is from the soft crackling fireplace as the Christmas tree glitters nearby. of Radio Dreams, a selected reading from The Master Switch by Tim Wu. The Ideals of British Broadcasting In 1922, John Wright, the youngest son of a Scottish minister, was appointed general manager of the newly formed British Broadcasting Company. At age 33, he had no relevant experience, though admittedly, individuals with credentials in broadcasting were few at the time. And so his selection was something of a mystery, even to him. As Wright wrote in his diary, quote, I am profoundly grateful to God for his goodness in this matter. It is all his doing. Wright used the favor of Providence to build a distinct and lasting model of public broadcasting. And the early BBC represents a road not taken relative to radio broadcasting in America, one that would abandon the structural openness so stirring of utopian sentiment, and yet in some sense more faithfully cultivate the improving ideals of public service. The policy of the company, wrote Wright in 1924, is to bring the best of everything into the greatest number of homes. In tune with Victorian convention about human perfectibility, radio was employed as a means of moral uplift, of shaping character, and generally of presenting the finest in human achievement and aspiration. And it was this way from the beginning. Wright presided over the medium as a monopoly from its very inception, with no open period of broadcast pluralism, the thrilling free-for-all that had sprung up in America. His power was absolute, yet governed by the British imperative of self-restraint. Wright's intentions were as evident on the surface as at the core of his efforts. He opened a London studio in Savoy Hill, its appointment more suggestive of a gentleman's refuge than the utilitarianism one might expect. Gail Pedrick, a BBC script editor, remarked, Next to the House of Commons, Savoy Hill was quite the most pleasant club in London. There were coal fires, and visitors were welcomed by a most distinguished-looking gentleman, who would conduct them to a cozy private room and offer whiskey and soda, end quote. Beginning in 1926, all announcers were required to wear dinner clothes during broadcasts, ostensibly to put similarly clad performers at ease and generally to preserve the decorum of the enterprise. In his 1924 book, Broadcast Over Britain, Wright gave definitive expression to his view of radio as a supremely dignified business. The medium, he wrote, must not become, quote, mere entertainment and, quote, catering to the imagined wants of listeners, there must be, he insisted, no concession to the vulgar. He believed that anything one might take for popular demand was but, in fact, the contrivance of broadcasters themselves. It was a view rather like the one expressed by Wright's contemporary, Walter Lippmann, in The Phantom Public. As Wright would later put it, quote, he who prides himself on giving what he thinks the public wants is often creating a fictitious demand for lower standards which he will then satisfy. The mission of improving general sensibilities naturally led to cultural and educational programming, including lectures on important topics by learned men, though avoiding controversy. There was to be an element of what we might call self-help through building knowledge, experience, and character, perhaps even in the face of obstacles, though never proclaiming a competitive creed nor advertising a panacea. 
Admittedly, the ban on provocation could limit the educational objective. Even a talk on women's rights, for example, could be too touchy. George Bernard Shaw, invited to give a talk in 1924, was warned not to discuss politics or religion. Politics and religion, he replied, are the only things I talk about. Not that all restrictions issued from Wright's own Victorian reticence. His vision of a more intelligent and enlightened electorate was sometimes limited by government pressure. The BBC, though initially a private enterprise, was since its inception under the tight scrutiny of the government, with which Wright's relations were ever poor. In his diary, Wright would vilify Winston Churchill as a cur, a coward, loathsome cad, and blasted thug. Unfortunately for Wright, his colleagues were hardly so stirred up by the Prime Minister and were perfectly content to toe the party line. As one BBC manager put it, we do not wish to have the broadcasting station used for propaganda which will excite one section of the population and be very distasteful to another. Hence, the norms of British broadcasting continued to conform to those of polite dinner conversation, avoiding anything that might upset or inflame. Perhaps the most famous of these norms is the one respecting spoken English. Among the mandates of the BBC, as custodian of the public trust, was to save the king's English from corruption. In modern days, BBC English is still a recognizable norm of sorts, though now accommodative of popular usage to a degree that might well have horrified the founders. Questions concerning debatable language were addressed by a particularly impressive advisory committee that included Rudyard Kipling, George Bernard Shaw, and the poet Robert Briggs, who met three times a year. The committee could take credit for eliminating expressions like broadcasted and listen in from standard usage. Wright's stream of lifting up the masses has an undeniable element of condescension about it. He had little curiosity of what the common people were interested in, nor must it be said was he particularly fond of them. Quote, I do not love or even like my neighbor, he once disclosed in a letter. In fact, I dislike him more and more as he hooliganizes about the road with open exhaust, glorifying and being a damnable curse to the whole community, end quote. This sentiment posed for him a certain crisis of faith. Quote, I believe profoundly in the Christian ethic, but I am a very poor practitioner, end quote. Though he had largely succeeded in making the BBC conform to his vision, he was never content with his progress and felt himself underappreciated. When he was knighted in 1927, but to no specific chivalric order, he wrote in his diary, quote, An ordinary knighthood is almost an insult. The Prime Minister has never comprehended the importance of our work, end quote. His dissatisfaction would persist into the 1940s when he created Baron Wright of Stonehaven, quote, I do not care two hoots or one hoot about honors and often wish I had never taken one. What I do care about is the injustice of not being given or offered them, end quote. Wright may have continued to harbor grudges against the British government, but in a way, his legacy is indebted to that institution. As we have said, the BBC, however closely watched by Whitehall, did not come into being as a government organ, but as a private company formed by a collective of radio manufacturers. Only later, in 1927, would it come under more direct public supervision, as a crown corporation, that is to say, a corporation owned by the king. In this way, the BBC would for decades be spared the great controversy over advertising, which would consume and ultimately shape American radio. The BBC, as Wright tells in his memoirs, quote, is not out to make money for the sake of making money, end quote. The company's sustaining revenue comes from the sale of licenses to receive broadcasts, 10 shillings, and in the early days, a royalty added to the price of radio sets. As for the American revenue model, the first parliamentary committee to consider radio banned advertising on the basis that it might, quote, lower the standard, end quote, though no explanation was given of how mention of tin meat might have that effect. And so, this is radio broadcasting in the 1920s. 
On one side of the Atlantic and the geographically vast United States, isolated clusters of local and mostly amateur operators, inspired by the enthusiasm of the hobbyist and a somewhat vague, though earnest, idea of national betterment. In Britain, a private monopoly with national reach, arguably elitist but unquestionably and systemically dedicated to bringing the, quote, best of everything, end quote, to the general public. In either setting, the medium would never be more hopeful or high-minded than at that time. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is Mary. That's M-E-R-R-Y. Mary. You've got until the 26th of December to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. Part 4. Centralize all radio activities. It is inconceivable, said Herbert Hoover, Secretary of Commerce at the first National Radio Conference in 1922, that we should allow so great a possibility for service, for news, for entertainment, for education, and for vital commercial purposes to be drowned in advertising chatter. End quote. Hoover's remarks reflected the accepted wisdom of the times, that advertising on radio was unacceptable. That is to say, they reflected what radio broadcasting was in the early 1920s, a decentralized industry founded on a rather idealized notion of an emergent technology, the technological utopia of its time. Hoover would convene several more such meetings in Washington, D.C. to create a form of self-rule for the broadcast industry. He believed not in law, command, or controls, but rather in what he called voluntarism, that ideal inescapably implied meetings to build consensus on shared norms in a friendly environment. According to a report of the first conference, all agreed that direct advertising and radio broadcast services should be absolutely prohibited. J.C. McQuiston, the head of publicity for radio manufacturer Westinghouse, spoke for many when he wrote that advertising would, quote, ruin the radio business for nobody would stand for it, end quote. Yet despite Hoover and the idealism of radio's dreamers, other forces had designs of their own on the future of the medium. Listeners who were tuned into New York's WEAF at about 5.15 on Monday, August 28, 1922, heard this, quote, Let me enjoin upon you as you value your health and your hopes and your home happiness, get away from the solid masses of brick, where the meager opening admitting a slant of sunlight is mockingly called a light shaft, and where children grow up starved for a run over a patch of grass and the sight of a tree. This, the world's first major radio advertisement, was a promotion for a housing development named Hawthorne Court. In format rather like what we'd call an infomercial, the spot urged listeners to leave Manhattan for the leafy comforts of Queens. It was also the opening shot in what would become the battle to redefine radio and ultimately to make it a closed medium. WEAF was the flagship station for AT&T, the telephone monopolist. More than Hoover or any other individual or entity, AT&T, it turns out, would define American broadcasting and entertainment in its inception, 
Indeed, while NBC sometimes called itself America's first network, Bell actually got there first. By 1924, its national broadcasting system, NBS, comprised 16 stations reaching 65% of American homes with radios. To a degree few understand, the mighty broadcast networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC, that would dominate American domestic life in the 20th centuries, were all ideological descendants of the Bell system. AT&T had a unique advantage in early radio broadcasting, monopoly ownership of the nation's only practical means of moving sound around the nation, namely its long-distance network. The network built for carrying telephone traffic was perfectly suited to carrying radio programs as well. As in unanticipated dividends of Vail, that's their leader, talked about in previous chapters that I'm not reading in this selection, adroitness, AT&T was the only company in a position to form an entity the world had never seen before, a broadcast network. The value of a network, as opposed to a mere station, is in the power to harness economies of scale. Even in the early 1920s, producing one show for 16 stations meant that AT&T could pool the resources from 16 different audiences to create a single, higher-quality product. The network is what made possible the production of broadcast news and entertainment as we would now recognize it. The NBS network also made it possible for American presidents, beginning with Calvin Coolidge, to give speeches reaching the entire nation at the same time, a form of political address that would see its height with Roosevelt's fireside chats. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The development of AT&T's network, the national broadcasting system, immeasurably important as it was, was preceded by another bell first, advertising. Advertising is a force with few peers in the cultural history of the 20th century, but its significance in the 1920s was to create a new and more sustainable business model for a radio station. Selling radio sets, the old revenue model, was a good, if limited, business for ultimately few households would need more than one radio every few years. But advertising revenues could expand indefinitely, or so it seemed then. Advertising, in time, proved almost a license to print money. And the effects on broadcasting of the revenue model it introduced can scarcely be overstated. It gave AT&T, and later the rest of the industry, an irresistible incentive not just to broadcast more, but to control and centralize the medium. To see why, compare the older model. When revenues came from the sales of radio sets, it was desirable to have as many people broadcasting as possible. Nonprofits, churches, and other non-commercial entities, too. The more broadcasters, the more inducement for the consumer to buy a radio and the more income for the industry. But once advertisements were introduced, radio became a zero-sum game for the attention of listeners. Each station wanted the largest possible audience listening to its programming and its advertisements. In this way, advertising made rivals of one-time friends, commercial and non-profit radio. At first, AT&T denied any interest in advertising, simply describing its place in the radio business in terms that had saved its telephone monopoly, quote, common carrier of the airwaves. As the firm prepared to operate WEAF at 6.60 a.m., it issued an announcement, quote, Anyone desiring to use these facilities for radio broadcasting should make arrangements with Mr. Drake, general commercial manager. As with the telephone network, for a fee, anyone could get on AT&T's radio network and broadcast as they like. In some sense, the common carriage concept provided cover and plausible deniability of any change in modus operandi. AT&T wasn't advertising, its customers were. Such caution, too, informed the types of advertising AT&T initially allowed. It barred any mentions of price or other possibly jarring details such as the color of a package or the location of a store. In consequence, ridiculous as it sounds, many of the first advertisements took a form more educational than commercial. Gillette's first radio ad, for example, was a lecture on the history of beards. In time, NBS would also develop the idea of sponsored programs and acts, 
among the first, the A&P Gypsies and the Avaretti Hour. And so it was NBS that originated, quote, entertainment that sells, unquote, an NBS that pioneered a radio broadcasting aimed at turning citizens into consumers. The basic formula that's dominated American radio and television for more than eight decades now. Within a few years, the rest of the radio industry was feverishly trying to imitate AT&T's model. No surprise, considering how obvious and overwhelming its advantages were. Advertising and sponsorship gave radio stations a sustainable financial base. Real money to pay speakers and musicians, who had formerly worked for free, with all the limitations on quality that that arrangement implies. But there was only so much the competition could accomplish without AT&T's long-distance network. When a utopian open media such as radio had been begins to close up, sinister forces may seem to be at work. There's sometimes truth to that impression, an extreme instance being the Third Reich's creation of a centralized broadcast system for propaganda. But just as often, the closing is driven by a hunger for quality and scale, the desire to improve, even perfect the medium, and realize its full potential, which is limited by openness for all its virtues. It was the ever-ready hour that led the way toward broadcast fare of higher quality and polish. Let there be no doubt that AT&T had a typically clear idea of what structure the radio industry should be. The company saw no reason not to apply Vale's winning ideals again, envisioning a vibrant, high-minded radio monopoly to go with its telephone monopoly. As A.H. Griswold, a AT&T executive, disclosed in a speech in 1923, with all the can-do hubris of the corporate culture, quote, We have been very careful up to the present time not to state to the public in any way through the press or in any of our talks the idea that the Bell system desires to monopolize broadcasting. But the fact remains that it's a telephone job, that we're telephone people, that we can do it better than anybody else. And it seems to me that the clear logical conclusion that must be reached is that sooner or later, in one form or another, we've got to do the job, end quote. To close the loop entirely, AT&T set about designing its own radio sets, presenting Calvin Coolidge with one of its more handsome models. In a final stroke, such as to this day inspire heated debate over network neutrality, AT&T's new radios were engineered to receive only AT&T broadcast frequencies. And not surprisingly, only AT&T programming. Thanks for listening to episode 172 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Martin Hursk and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Martin Hursk and Adam B. Levine. Happy holidays. <laughs>